time to begin this morning. Glad you're here, especially if you are among our guests today. We're especially glad and always glad to have visitors in our class and in our worship assemblies. And if you're among that number, thank you for being here today. We are studying the book of 1 Corinthians in this class, and we will be in chapter 7 today. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Somebody's car is serenading us from the parking lot. Okay, it stopped, whoever it was. We'll begin uh, our class, as we always do, by approaching our God in prayer. And following the prayer, we'll study together. Let's pray. Holy Father, we thank you for the occasion that brings us together today. We're always thankful when... The Lord's day is upon us, and grateful that it gives us the opportunity to meet in class like this and to assemble together for worship in just a little bit. And we pray that that you would receive today the honor and the glory that is due to your name. We pray for your blessing as we study together, and we pray that You would bless the other classes that are also meeting at this time. We thank you for all of the spiritual riches that we enjoy in Christ. And we're thankful that that you always bless us with those things that we need. And so please accept our thanks and hear our prayer. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, 1 Corinthians chapter 7. In chapter 7, Paul makes a transition from dealing with matters that had come to him through Chloe's household, the report that he had received. He references that in the first chapter. It's been reported to me by those of the household of Chloe that there are contentions among you, verse 11. And so he begins to address those matters and Uh, and some other issues that had come up. But the wording, beginning in what we know as chapter 7, changes. uh, And he begins to address some different things. Notice how verse 1 begins. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote. So now Paul is is turning his attention to answering uh, certain questions that the church at Corinth had asked him in in a letter that they had sent to him. Obviously, we don't have that letter, um, and so it's, it's like we're listening in to, um, uh, to one side of a phone conversation. Uh, we can hear what's being said on this end, but we, can't, we don't know exactly what was said on the other end, but you can know somewhat of what's happening on the other end based upon what you hear on this end. Does that make any sense at all? <laughs> all right, so if you're listening to one side of the conversation... A lot of times you can kind of pick up on the general statements of what's going on on the other end just by putting two and two together. 
So that's, what, that's the only thing we can do uh, with 1 Corinthians 7 and with other things that he addresses through the rest of the letter is to try to put the pieces together based upon what Paul says. It gives us some insight into what they were asking. Uh, and so uh, chapter 7 deals with the first of these questions or issues that they were having, and it, it deals with various concerns or components of marriage. They evidently had a lot of questions about, uh, about their marital uh, relationships and, and perhaps how, um, how those relationships uh, were to be affected or not to be affected by the fact that, that they were now Christians. And so Paul addresses some of those questions and deals with some other matters pertaining to marriage. Now, I'll say at the outset, uh, we probably will not answer every question that you may have in your own mind uh, in your reading and studying of chapter 7. We just, we, we just probably won't do that. Hopefully, we'll answer some of those in, in the course of our study. But um, uh, if we don't happen to address your particular question, I apologize for that. Uh, maybe I can perhaps help with that in a more uh, private setting or in future uh, classes. All right, so let's, uh, let's try to get through this as we normally do. We'll go through the text, kind of summarize the text, outline it, get the gist of it, and then we'll look for some practical applications toward the end of class. All right, first of all, some general instructions. First 11 verses uh, deal with some, some more general matters um, and he addresses different types of people that are in different marital situations and gives them some general instructions. Later in the chapter, he seems to get into some more specific questions. And so let's start with these general instructions. Verses 1 through 7, he addresses uh, matters pertaining to intimacy in general and intimacy in marriage. He begins in verse 1. Now concerning the, the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man... Not to touch a woman. That's what most of the translations have, and that is accurate translation. Um, uh, the ESV uh, took some liberties there and did a little bit of interpretation uh, where it reads, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. I do think that's what Paul means when he uses the word touch there. I think he's talking about intimate touch. Um, but um, touch is the word that he uses there, and he says it's good that a man not touch a woman. Now, the statement there in verse 1 about it being good not to touch a woman offers the same difficulty that we faced in chapter 6, verses 12 and 13, where Paul said, all things are lawful for me. And so the question is, as it was in chapter 6, is this a statement that Paul is himself affirming that it is good for a man not to touch a woman, or is he quoting something that the Corinthians were contending and then answering uh, or responding to their statement. Now in chapter 6, it's my judgment that Paul was quoting them and, and, and quoting kind of their motto or their mantra and then addressing himself to that. But given what Paul says in the remainder of this chapter, I think in this case, in chapter 7 verse 1, that the statement is Paul's. I think Paul is giving a general instruction to them uh, in, in light of what he'll refer to later in the chapter as this present distress, verse 26. Uh, but he's going to qualify that as he continues to write. I think he's just simply making a general statement that he's going to support later by saying, look, 
I don't think it's good, given the present circumstances, for new, additional, intimate relationships to be formed. Uh, and he'll talk about why that is uh, as he goes on. And so I think Paul's general instruction here is that new relationships uh, of intimacy, marriages, should not be created unless, verse 2, there's a real danger of individuals giving in to sexual temptation. But because of temptation to fornication or sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. In other words, don't form new intimate relationships given the present circumstances. But if the temptation is too strong for you to resist in that regard, with regard to intimacy, then it's better to be married and, and not become guilty of sin. Now, regarding those who are already married, verses 3 and 4, neither husband nor wife, he says, should withhold themselves, conjugal rights, uh, from the other. Uh, so when he, so again, it's, it seems to be in the context of qualifications. His general instruction is, don't, don't create these new intimate relationships given the present distress, because he'll say later, it just creates additional problems that right now you don't need. But if, you, if you're having, you know, if you, if you have problems with that as far as the severity of temptation in that regard, then, then marry. Now, but if you are married, then there's no reason to, 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 be, to, to withhold yourself sexually from your spouse. And so he's, he's giving more complete instructions in that regard. Uh, the only situation, he says, verse 5, in which it would be acceptable is if both husband and wife agree uh, that they'll not be intimate for a period of time, and that for spiritual reasons, to devote yourselves to prayer. Some translations add fasting. Uh, and so for spiritual reasons, by mutual consent only, uh, should you withhold yourselves from each other. Uh, but under normal circumstances and with everything else being equal, then, then don't do that. Uh, because the husband has authority over the wife's body. The wife has authority over the husband's body when it comes to matters of, of intimacy. All right? But come together quickly, end of verse 5, even if you do have this mutual consent for spiritual reasons, don't let it be for an extended period of time, lest you face temptations uh, and you're, uh, you know, and because of a lack of self-control, you have the, uh, might have a tendency to give in to temptation. All right. So those are the general instructions. Now he's going to qualify some of that. And he's going to give some additional, more specific instructions as he proceeds for those who are unmarried and for widows. Verses eight and nine to the unmarried and widows. I say, it's good for them to remain single as I am. Alright, so that's, that's his instructions given the circumstances. Remain unmarried again, but unless, verse 9, if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. It's better to marry than to burn. Burn with passion is the idea. It's better to, to go ahead and marry so that you can have a lawful um, way uh, to... Uh, you know, to express yourself in, in, in that intimate relationship than it is to, to, to simply burn up with passion and have no way to, to release that. For the married, right? Verses 10 and 11. To the married, I give this charge. But he says, not I, but the Lord. What he says in these two verses uh, comprises something that Jesus himself had personally addressed 
when he was walking the earth. Um, Matthew 19, Mark chapter 10, when Jesus gave his instruction regarding, uh, regarding marriage and regarding uh, the question of divorce, Jesus had already addressed this. And so when Paul says, I say this to the married, but not I, the Lord. In other words, the Lord's already addressed this personally himself, and so I'm just basically repeating what he had already said. And in a nutshell, his instructions, was, instructions were, married people need to remain married. Uh, but <clears throat> if a departure happens, wife should not separate from her husband, but verse 11, if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not put away his wife. All right, so those, if you're married, stay that way. But if one of the, if one of the spouses leaves, then the other one has two options. Remain single, remain unmarried, unjoined, or reconcile to the departed spouse. Okay? Now, that's the general instruction. He's going to get more specific again as he goes, as he goes along. So those, are the, those verses 1 through 11 comprise the general statements about intimacy in general, uh, the unmarried and widows, those that are married. Here's the general instructions that Paul is giving to them um, given their circumstances, and given the Lord's will. All right? Now, you get into verses 12 through 24, he gets more specific about some of these circumstances. Now, verses 12 through 16. For believers married to unbelievers. Paul has some specific instructions, which evidently this was, again, part of the letter that they had sent to him. It's very easy to see how Paul lays out his response. Okay? He gives general instructions and he says, okay, to the married and the widows. Well, perhaps they had questions about that. What should married people and widows, unmarried people and widows do? Uh, how, how should the married act? Well, he's taking that point by point. It's almost as if they had a bulleted list of questions and he's taking them as they came. Verse 12. To the rest, I say, I, not the Lord. Now, some have contended, and I think wrongly so, that what Paul is saying here is basically uninspired. That, um, uh, that there's no divine authority behind what he's saying here. I don't believe that's what Paul is saying at all. I think what Paul is saying is in contrast to what he had said previously. In verses 10 and 11, here's something that the Lord himself dealt with when he was walking the earth. And so the Lord said this, here's what I'm saying, but the Lord didn't deal with this. When, the, when, when Jesus walked the earth, he didn't specifically deal with this situation. He didn't say anything about this specifically. It's not that Paul is saying what I'm about to tell you has no divine authority behind it. He's just simply saying Jesus didn't deal with this personally, but I'm dealing with it now. Paul, still an inspired uh, apostle. So it's not that Paul was jumping in and out of inspiration, as it were. Uh, it's just something Jesus never personally spoke about. So what does he say? To the rest I say, if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If a woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. So evidently they had questions about whether or not the fact that they had become Christians should affect their marriage relationships uh, in the sense that if you had 
one individual, one spouse in a family who embraced the gospel and had become a Christian, but the other spouse didn't, did that mean that the Christian spouse needed to put away that unbelieving spouse so that they wouldn't be married anymore? Did, did, did the fact that one of them became, became a Christian necessitate uh, an ending of the marriage relationship? And Paul's answer to that is no. That that, that, doesn't, uh, that doesn't change that obligation. Becoming a Christian didn't change that. Being married to an unbeliever is not a sin. Uh, and so if an unbelieving spouse is content to stay in the marriage, then, then, then stay. And Paul further says that by, by them staying together, it creates somewhat of a sanctified, to use his terminology, a sanctified environment in which an unbelieving spouse and the children that are a part of that home will have the influence of Christianity around them on a, on a regular basis. And he'll say in verse 16 that it might eventually result in conversion. How do you know, wife, verse 16, whether you'll save your husband? How do you know, husband, whether you'll save your wife? And so his point there is, number one, it's not a sin to be married to an unbeliever, and so therefore you still have the marital obligations in place. And he says, and besides that, if, if you were to put away an unbelieving spouse, now you've created a situation in which that spouse is not going to even be in an, in an environment in which the principles of New Testament Christianity could have an effect on that person. And so this sanctified environment exists if you were to stay together and it helps the unbelieving spouse, it helps the children and all of that, and you might eventually... Uh, see a conversion happen. So no, don't, don't put away an unbeliever simply because he or she's an unbeliever. Stay together. Evidently they had a question about that. Now, verse 15, <clears throat> one of the controversial verses in the chapter. <clears throat> so his instruction is, stay. But what happens, verse 15, if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. I'm reading from the ESV. God has called you to peace. Um, you are not under bondage in such cases, uh, other translations read. So his point there is, um, if an unbeliever leaves the marriage, if they're content to stay, stay. But if the unbeliever leaves the marriage, the believer is not so enslaved to that unbeliever that he or she is obligated to try to force some kind of hostile environment just for the sake of physical proximity. He says, look, marriage is supposed to be a, 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 an environment of peace. God's called you to peace. But if this unbeliever is so hostile that he is not willing, he or she is not willing to stay there because you're a believer, then don't try to force that physical proximity. And, and, and have a hostile environment just for the sake of that physical closeness. Let the unbeliever depart if they're intent on doing that. Now, what some have concluded based on that, that wording is that Paul has uh, offered uh, another, another acceptable reason for divorce and subsequent remarriage. Uh, it's, it's referred to as the Pauline privilege, uh, that, um, that if you've got a believer and an unbeliever and the unbeliever departs, then the believer is free to remarry. I don't believe this passage teaches that. Um, 
there's nothing stated in this passage about the marriage, uh, the marital obligations being removed. When he says that the believer is not under bondage in such cases or is not enslaved, that word means literally that, to be, to be made a slave of. New Testament writers have referred to and do refer to periodically the marriage bond, English, English word bond. Um, but what's interesting about it is there were two different words in the Greek language for a bond. There was one word that was used to describe uh, a, a, a figurative type bond. There was another word that was more literal, that, that really con conjured up the idea of, of slavery, enslavement. The figurative type bond word was the word used exclusively when referencing marriage. The word that's used here, not under bondage, is the word for enslavement, which is never anywhere in the New Testament ever used to refer to the marriage bond. In other words, marriage is not slavery. It's never been slavery. Uh, and um, uh, Paul's point is, as we said earlier, that the believer is not so enslaved that that believer has to keep close physical proximity. Let the, let the hostile unbeliever go if that's their desire. There's nothing in the text that says she's no longer married to him, that, she's no longer, that that marriage bond is no longer applicable. Let me offer you another reason, and some of this is spelled out in the application section uh, in your handout. Uh, I'm just kind of getting ahead of myself a little bit. The word that's translated enslaved there is a perfect tense verb in the Greek text, which is a tense that denotes action in past time with abiding results. Right? The, the Greek language was a lot more expressive than English is, and so we have to use a lot more wording and terminology in English to sometimes express the same thing that the Greeks could do in one word. All right? It's just the differences in language. This particular tense of verb, the perfect tense, indicates action that had taken place in past time, but it has continuing results, all right? Abiding results. Here's the, here's the idea. You were not enslaved, you were not under bondage, and you are not now under bondage. You are not in bondage now and never have been, is the import of that word. So when he says the, the believer is not under bondage in such cases, he's saying you're not now, you never have been. Right? You're not in bondage now, you never were in bondage. You're not enslaved now, you never were enslaved. Well, if the bondage there is marriage, then you've got Paul saying you're not married now, you never have been. Is that what he's saying? No, he's not saying that. He's saying you're not enslaved now and you never have been. And so if the unbeliever decides that the unbeliever wants to leave, you're not so enslaved to that person that you have got to try to force that person to stay in close physical proximity just for the sake of close physical proximity. If they want to leave, let them go. Paul doesn't address at all the fact 
with regard to their marriage, he doesn't in indicate in any way that you're still not bound to that person by the marital obligation. You just are not so enslaved that you've got to try to create a hostile environment where that person is, is, is so connected that you've got to force that and create a hostile situation. Let the person go, but the instructions of verses 10 and 11 would still apply. Either be reconciled or remain unmarried. All right? That's my take on that. Now, 17. <clears throat> Live as you are called. Paul's instruction in this section, which is basically remain in the marital situation in which you were when you were called. In other words, when you became a Christian. That general instruction, again, uh, has been pulled from its context by some and I think grossly misapplied. Uh, some have said, based on this section, that, well, if a person, let's say a person before they become a Christian, they, they have married and they have divorced five times, none of which involved any kind of marital unfaithfulness, no fornication was involved, they just tried this, it didn't work out, they've, they've been married all these times, and so they come into Christianity, they obey the gospel, and whatever relationship they're in, that baptism sanctifies that relationship. And so they just stay in the relationship that they're in from that point forward, and none of that other matters. All right? I don't believe that's what this passage teaches, or any passage in the New Testament. I think it's very poor exegesis, personally. Um, because think about it. Are we going to argue that becoming a Christian sanctifies what was previously a sinful relationship? Is that what we're going to argue? If it is, then let's see how that applies. What about homosexual marriage? What if you, we have that in our country now. Let's say two people of the same gender get a document from the state that says they're married. And then they come and they say, all right, we're going to obey the gospel, but we get to abide in the state in which we were called. And so we don't have to end that relationship because baptism is going to sanctify that relationship and make what was previously sinful now acceptable. If we're going to argue that for divorce and remarriage situations that were sinful before, but we're going to sanctify them by baptism, then we don't have any basis to deny that to homosexual marriage. What about uh, polygamy? Got a polygamous relationship, and, and somebody says, well, but ba baptism is going to sanctify that relationship. Once I become a Christian, I can remain in the situation in which I was called. We're going to allow that. What about, uh, you know, put, plug anything in there, incestuous relationship? What about just shacking up? What about two people that aren't married at all? Remain in the situation in which you were called. All right? What that does is it fails to consider the context of 1 Corinthians 7, of this particular section. There is a context to consider. And Paul tells the reader what relationships he has in mind when he says, stay in your current situation. Racially mixed marriages 
and slave-free relationships. Those are the situations that he's specifically talking about in this section and in which he says, stay in the circumstance in which you were called. In other words, Jew and Gentile, <clears throat> verses 17 through 20. Look at 18. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Then don't seek to remove the marks of it. Was he called an uncircumcision? Let him not seek circumcision. Neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. In other words, the fact that you became a Christian and the fact that, that there is this kind of, of, of difference in your marriage doesn't mean that anything about the marriage has to change. You can stay in the situation in which you were called if this is a Jew-Gentile situation. Becoming a Christian didn't necessitate any special changes regarding circumcision or the lack thereof. Just because there was this racial diversity in marriage did not mean that either was obligated to change or to proselyte in order for the marriage to be proper. They could remain in the condition in which they were called. The same for slave and free, verses 21 to 24. Christian slaves were not obligated to seek freedom just because they were now free in Christ, though they could accept freedom if it was offered. And free people should not put themselves in bondage to others. Those are the two things that he is talking about in the context of when he says, stay in the situation that you're in when you're called. He's not talking about anything and everything, any kind of relationship and every kind of relationship that anybody might possibly be in at the time they become a Christian. You just stay in that relationship. That, that's pulling that whole section out of its context and applying it way far more broadly than what Paul ever intended for it to be applied. Yes? Yeah. 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 That's a good point. Yeah. We, you know, we we live in a time in which you know this this issue of of marital situations, divorces, and all that, uh, you know, as it becomes more and more commonplace in our culture, then the culture becomes more and more hostile to what God has revealed. And so sometimes, and I I, I can't question the motives of any individual person. But no doubt the temptation exists for individuals to try to find loopholes, try to find some kind of, 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 of way to, uh, to, to, to justify something that really is not justified. I don't know, I'm not saying that everybody who has adopted some of these positions did so for that reason. Uh, but it's, it's easier to find acceptance for that kind of thing. Uh, in a culture where um, where this is becoming more and more of a of a difficult and and touchy situation, all right. Let's look at the present distress, verses twenty five through forty, because this has some bearing on on certain things too. <clears throat> look at verse twenty six is the key to this section. I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Paul's instruction in this section in particular, and I think it to some degree the entire chapter, uh, to remain in current conditions is based upon what he refers to as this present distress or impending distress. It's impossible to identify the nature of this distress with certainty. But I think it is clear enough uh, to conclude that it involves persecution of Christians. Those that are married, according to Paul in this section, would be facing troubles. Look at verse 28. 
end of the verse, those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. I don't want you to go through that. Verse 32, he'll mention, I want you to be free from anxieties. And then he goes and talks about, here's some of the anxieties that married people have. All right, and so there, there's this, this circumstance in which Paul said there is this present distress or impending distress that would involve anxieties, troubles, problems. And so Paul says, I want you to be free from that. And in verses 32 through 34, he gets a little more specific. Basically says, look, single folks can focus all of their attention on pleasing the Lord. Married people have the added responsibility of having to nurture that marriage relationship. Look at that in 32 to 34. 33, the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. His interests are divided. The unmarried is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and in spirit. The married woman is anxious about how to please her husband. And he says, look, I say this to your benefit. I want to spare you these anxieties. So he says, look, this is why I'm suggesting that given the present distress, that you remain in the situation that you are currently in. So whatever the distress was, Paul thought it would be most advantageous for Christians to have nothing, not even marriage, distracting them from focusing on being faithful to God because that was going to become very hard very soon. And that's why, given those peculiar circumstances, that Paul prefaces some of his remarks in this section with, verse 25, let me offer you my judgment. Verse 40, in my judgment. All right? So, given that governing principle, Paul's instructions are remain as you are if possible. Verse 25. Now, concerning <clears throat> some translations, virgins, the betrothed, we'll talk about the difficulty with that in a moment. Uh, I give my judgment, and so forth. Basically, he says, look, if you're not married, then I suggest you stay that way. But if you do marry, I'm not, I'm not saying you've committed sin, I'm telling you that it's in my judgment that it would be better if you didn't. And of course, if you're married, stay that way. Um, when he says, are you bound to a wife? Verse 27, then don't seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Then don't seek one. But if you do, you haven't sinned. Some have said that, um, well, <clears throat> then therefore, then that means that anybody who is divorced doesn't sin if they remarry, regardless of the reason. He doesn't say that. He asks, are you free from a wife? He doesn't say, have you been divorced for any and every reason you can think of? Not everyone who walks around with a piece of paper that says that they're free from their marital obligations are free from their marital obligations. Right? Just because the state says you are no longer bound to this other person, that doesn't necessarily mean that they're not bound to each other, not as far as God's concerned. States can, can give marriage licenses to people that God hasn't joined in marriage, right? We talked about that, same-sex marriage. The state may say you're married. God doesn't. The state may say that you no longer have marital obligations, that this marriage is severed. Well, God's not bound by state declarations if those state declarations aren't in harmony with His will. 
All right, so he says if you're free from a wife, well, who's free from a wife? Well, those that have been scripturally divorced, according to Matthew 19, or those that have been widowed. They're, they're free, and they're so if you're free, I say don't marry, but if you do, you haven't sinned. He's not giving carte blanche for anybody to remarry uh, just because they have been declared by somebody to be free to remarry. 36 through 40. Here's, here's another difficult section. While Paul encourages the unmarried to stay that way, he offers some additional instruction in this section. Now the question is, verse 36, let me read to you, here's how ESV translates this. If anyone thinks that he is not behaving properly toward his betrothed, Other translations have something completely different. If anyone thinks he's not behaving properly toward his virgin daughter. All right. Betrothed, uh, English Standard, Revised Standard. The virgin he's engaged to is NIV. Uh, his virgin daughter, New American Standard, New King James. Uh, his virgin, King James, and others. Well, obviously the translators are struggling here to know what Paul was intending by that. Uh, incidentally, in the translations where it has daughter, uh, do you notice that's in italics? Which means the translators supplied that word. Uh, it's not in the original Greek text, but that's what the translators think is the intention there, and so they added that to try to give clarification. Literally, it just says virgin. Whoever thinks that he's not behaving properly toward his virgin. Um, so either, here, here are the two possibilities. Either Paul is giving instructions to fathers and whether or not they should allow their virgin daughters to marry. You know, and the fathers had a big say-so in that back then. And so he's saying, if you don't think this is working out and how you're dealing with your virgin daughter who wants to marry... Or he's given instruction to men who are engaged to virgins. Your virgin. In other words, the one to whom you are engaged. And that's how some translators have thought that. And so they translated it that way. Um, I tend to lean toward the latter. I think he's probably talking about those who are engaged to uh, virgins. But either way, the instruction is the same. And here's the general instruction. He's basically saying, look, if there are those that are struggling with self-control, that they're in real danger of committing sin, then go ahead and marry. Fathers, if, if your unmarried daughter and is, is, you know, if there's a self-control issue there and you're simply saying, no, I'm not going to allow you to marry, he says, look, don't do that. Allow her to marry. If it's a self-control issue, allow her to marry. Or if he's talking about those that are engaged, it's the same principle. If, if there's a self-control issue there and you're really struggling with that, it's not sinful for you to go ahead and marry. Go ahead and marry. I'm just telling you that it would be better if you could remain in an unmarried state given the present circumstances. And then to widows, it's the same, it's the same principle. Remain unmarried, uh, but if you do marry in the Lord then, you know, I'm not telling you you've sinned by so doing. All right. Tough chapter, right? I get it. Uh, 
let's try to get some other applications here uh, before we conclude. All right. <clears throat> Number one, intimacy in marriage is holy, righteous, and good. God created us as sexual beings. Uh, and so Paul says, Paul in this section says, look, don't, don't withhold that connection from each other. If you are married to each other, don't, don't do that. Uh, it's, a, it's a good, holy, a righteous thing. And in connection with that, the second application that I have in the text, in the um, handout, is that intimacy in marriage is about giving, not about receiving. Um, and, you know, a lot of times marriages struggle uh, over matters of, of, of an intimate nature. And I, I'm trying to, <laughs> trying to deal with this delicately, but, um, um, but Paul deals with it, so, you know, we need to to the best degree that we can. My point is, a lot of times individuals, husbands and wives, when they think about the, the intimate relationship that they have with their spouse, they think of it more in terms of receiving. What do I get out of this, right? What do I want from this relationship? What do I want the other person, uh, you know, to, to, to do for me or how they to conduct themselves in view of what I desire, what I like? Paul says, look, that relationship is not about receiving. It's about giving, okay? Each, each person in the relationship needs to be focused on the other person, not on what they are to receive from that relationship, but what can I do in this part of our marriage to make this better for my spouse? Okay? It's about giving, not about receiving. Uh, and so the instruction then is don't withhold yourselves from each other except under those special circumstances. The, the intimate relationship in marriage is not a bargaining chip, okay? And should never be used as such. If, if you are married to uh, someone who has, uh, um, uh, you know, who, who has those desires for intimacy, uh, and, um, uh, and, and you know how strong those desires are, and you decide that, you know what, I could use this to my advantage, right? I could, I could, I could withhold myself, okay, until I get what I want, right? Use it as some kind of bargaining chip or manipulative tool in marriage. Paul says don't do that, okay? You're, you are for your spouse, and your spouse is for you. And uh, the other person in the marriage, the, the, your spouse is the one who has control over your body when it comes to matters of intimacy and you over there. So, so, so don't withhold yourselves from each other. All right. Well, I hope, <laughs> I hope that made sense. <clears throat> All right. Uh, number next. God's general marriage law is not that difficult to understand. Okay? <clears throat> it's just not. <clears throat> are there circumstances and situations where, where people have gotten themselves into situations that, that it would take the wisdom of Solomon to decipher? Yeah. I've had people that have come to me and said, okay, let me give you a hypothetical. 
And then they start laying out this case. All right, this happened, these two people were married, and then this happened, and this happened, and there was a divorce here, and then this person had this many marriages over here, and they end up together, and this, and, and, it, and, it's, and it's all based upon a reality. This happened to my sister, all right? This happened to my brother, or whatever. And people can get themselves in circumstances where I have simply had to say, you know what, I don't have the wisdom of Solomon. To, to decipher all of those different connections and, and, and to give you an answer. All right? So, yes, I understand there are some sticky situations. My point here is that God's general marriage law is itself not that difficult to understand. One man, one woman for life, the only exception, fornication. That's not hard to understand. Okay? And that's my point. Um, now, sometimes you have to work through situations and figure out who did what and all of that uh, before you know, certain individual situations can be, can, can the passages be applied to those situations. But the instruction itself is not difficult. Not nearly as difficult as some folks try to make it out to be. All right, well, we're out of time. Um, had a couple more things to say on that, so maybe we'll, we'll get to that uh, a little bit later. Thank you much. Appreciate it.